And now I thought we might have a moment, however brief, for some sincerity. Uh, if that's okay, I know there are boundaries for a comedian, pundit, talker guy, and I'm sure I'll find out tomorrow how I have violated them. <laughs> I'm really happy you guys are here. Even if none of us are really quite sure why we are here. Welcome back to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan. And I'm Luke Savage. Hi. So here we are, um, 11 days into the Trump administration, and, you know, it feels good. We've taken America back. Ugh. Like, I just got back from work at the mill, which just reopened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, feeling pretty good. How are you feeling? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't sure how to respond to your uh, your opening salvo there because I think, uh, I don't know, my relationship to uh, irony is becoming increasingly strained in the early days of the Trump presidency. I think it's hard to know how to uh, how to respond to what's unfolding. Irony is our only tool at this point. Yeah. It's our only defense mechanism. I, I think you're right. So, I don't know. I feel like I've been walking around these last 11 days just like with a general feeling of unease and yeah. and uh, unhappiness. That's right. I mean, I, I do think there have been some signs that are... It's important to find signs of uh, hope amidst the despair. We get like... A couple of small victories every couple of days, followed by enormous, just just awful, uh, yeah. horrible things. I think the best thing you can do is read anything. If you want to know what the Trump administration is really about, and a lot of liberals and especially Senate Democrats still haven't grasped this, but... You know, read anything he says. Maybe don't take it literally, but read it as a statement of intent. And, I mean, sometimes do read it literally. When he says he wants to, like impose a Muslim ban, well, he's gone, he's gone ahead and done it. But what I was going to say is, I mean, you know, uh, the first weekend of Trump's presidency, there were the women's marches, which were some of the biggest marches in the history of the United States. Uh, we've had parallel mar marches here in uh, in Toronto and in Canada um, over the, this weekend, uh, this past weekend, which was only the second weekend of the Trump presidency. You know, protesters shut down several major airports and the Trump administration had to at least partially reverse its ban um, when it came to U.S. green card holders. So I don't know. I mean, I don't think the Bush administration had anything like these kinds of protests. I mean, they weren't quite taking the same kinds of actions, but I, I think that it's encouraging that, you know, certainly outside of um, political institutions anyway, a lot of people are and a lot of people who aren't, you know, active in politics or haven't historically been are, are taking uh, the initiative. So that that heartens me. I think I would just add uh, that the Trump presidency is the first Republican administration at a time when social media is what it is right. now. I mean, one thing that has happened with these events is that they become viral events and they become social events. Yeah. Like, you know, these protests are things that people can do with their friends now, and mm -hmm. it can be fun for them to do. That's right. Uh, they can have fun making their signs yeah. that, that are that and making, funny And making videos. I mean, the other thing is, like, everybody's instant um, protest mm -hmm. moment uh, goes, goes live, like, right away. Like, there are millions of videos of these things. I think this is something that can possibly be harnessed for good. Yeah. I think we've been seeing it be harnessed for good. If you can make it something that is a social thing and that people can... I'm going to say performativity, but like performativity isn't always bad. That's right. Like if it can be used for good in this case, then that's great. That's right. And I mean, it's not as if um, 
the Trump supporters are staging uh, counter demonstrations that are, you know, I mean, or if they're staging any, I'm unaware of them. I mean, well, there was the, uh, there was the, the March, the for, March Life. for Life, which happens every single year and mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, definitely wasn't uh, as grand in scale at all as the as the Women's March. Um, you know, I think that it's a very strange situation politically because you have a president who is already uniquely unpopular. The Trumpers don't they don't have the country. Mm-hmm. You know, like they have the political institutions, they have kind of the the levers of power, but they lack a lot of institutional support and they don't have a lot of popular support either. That should be something that emboldens people. Well, we took a little trip back in time for this episode, though. We're going to explore the oeuvre of one John Stewart, somebody <laughs> who I'm sure is... You know, I'm sure that many people listening to this have a long and complicated yeah, th- this, relationship. This is with. the John Stewart episode, by the way. Maybe we should have said that a bit, a bit earlier. A, but it's in the title. This is like this is our rally to restore sanity. <laughs> you know, this right here in my kitchen. Here we are, eleven days into the Trump presidency, and it's time to just like use our inside voices again to That's quote right. the poet himself. Yeah, in fact, uh, this thing we're recording on here, Will. I'm not sure if you've noticed. It's kind of a kind of a, a a rudimentary plank that's elevated by uh you know some uh, some legs it's called a it's called a table and it's a place <laughs> where it's a place where adult conversations like the one we're having now can can happen and, and you know the problem is once you take one of those legs away the the table totters but if you and i work together to put that to put that leg back under right. the if, table. That's right. If me, a bleeding heart liberal, liberal, and you, a fastidious conservative, can work together and use <laughs> our no bodies to us. use our bodies to actually constitute the fourth leg, uh, yeah. <laughs> I made a special effort to come on the show today because I have uh, privately, amongst my friends, and also in occasional newspapers and television shows, <laughs> mentioned uh, this show as being uh, uh, bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and I wanted to, I felt that that wasn't fair and I should come here and, and tell you that I don't, it's not so much that it's bad as it's hurting America. <laughs> so I, I wanted to but come here today let me, and say, wait, wait, no, I just, let me here, here, here's just one, what I wanted to tell you guys. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> so ostensibly this week we watched uh, John Stewart's one and only feature directorial effort, Rosewater, from 2014. But, I mean, there's not a lot there, so we'll probably just be talking about John Stewart in general. I mean, so this is a film that's about... So it's a it's a kind of reenactment of a real-life story of a British-Iranian journalist who uh, was detained in Iran in 2009 during the kind of green protest following the election in which the opposition candidate was widely expected to defeat the incumbent president, uh, Ahmadinejad. And, you know, there were widespread, you know, accusations of kind of vote tampering and things by the state. And uh, so in the midst of kind of the protests that ensued, the journalists filmed uh, state violence against protesters and that was promptly picked up the next morning. But, uh, but also he was picked up because of an appearance that he made on The Daily Show. Oh, right. Where Excuse me. Jason Jones, <laughs> yeah. for one of his field reports, interviews him and Jason Jones is pretending to be a spy. That's right. And, and starts asking him questions about, well, as a spy, what can I learn about Iran? So he gets picked up by the authorities and questioned for being a spy. Right. The part before the prison constitutes, what, 30 minutes of kind of a 100-minute movie. movie? So, I mean, this film, I think it's safe to say, has a basic competence to it. Like, Jon Stewart should be lauded for writing this movie and for putting it together. It's not great. Um, I mean, it you know, most of the film kind of takes place like in his prison cell or in a room where he's being interrogated. And 
I think you know it kind of lost our. We were kind of uh, we were kind of plugged into it for the first thirty minutes. Then we you know lost. It got uh, very repetitive. It got very repetitive, and you know, and of course he's and he's, it didn't have a lot to say. Honestly, no, he's made to confess, and then he kind of been you know he ends he ends up. Uh, rediscovering his hope through a call with his pregnant uh, wife and then he uh, he gets out and, and that's pretty much the movie. But let's get back to this movie in a bit. I want to talk about what's our relationship with Jon Stewart. What's your relationship with Jon Stewart? I think I was never um, a full-on daily show head, but I think, you know, I didn't, I definitely never had a cycle of watching it every week or anything like that. But I mean, just like anybody of our generation, any, uh, God fear and millennial. You know, I certainly watched a ton of it, and I wa- mm-hmm. I think I I think I preferred Colbert, although like, I didn't watch that regularly either. I think it's safe to say, you know, you don't even have to really have TV to be aware of Jon Stewart because in the age of social media, you just see these clips all the time, and you experience them, you know, as much kind of through the headlines by which they're presented on John social Stewart media. John Stewart eviscerates, yeah, you know, um, totally destroys, yeah. like perfectly shuts down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's kind of where I was at with Jon Stewart. What about you? I was certainly a fan. You know, I would go through periods of watching him every night, you know, as as a boy who read Michael Moore books um, and was very much against the Iraq War. (laughs) I was definitely of that school of thought that was like, finally, at least one man on TV is still sane. (laughs) You remember people would say that all the time? And I mean, the fact is he was like the farthest left voice that was in the media, maybe aside from Michael Moore. I think it's safe to say Jon Stewart forms, you know, as important a part, possibly, well, probably more so of the kind of American liberal ecosystem as patron patron saint of the show, uh, Michael Moore. I would say that I stopped watching him not long after Obama became president, and it wasn't necessarily out of antipathy towards him. It was just more the fact that his show was making me angry by the, by the fact that every episode became about, you know, something that Glenn Beck said. Or yeah, something Fox that News. Bill O'Reilly yeah. and Stuart reacting to it. And there came to be a point, maybe around 2009 or 2010, when I thought, geez, I wouldn't even know about what Glenn Beck said if I wasn't watching it on The Daily Show. Yeah. And the stakes seemed a lot lower in the Obama era. It used to be, you know, Stuart was ostensibly the one guy in the media going after Bush, you know, Mm -hmm. saying the emperor had no clothes. Mm -hmm. But now it's Stuart's going after Fox News. Who cares? That's right. I think, you know, liberalism, and this has been a grand theme of Michael and us, which is that, you know, liberalism, when we were kind of teenagers... When liberalism is in a position where it seems to be dissenting, it's cloaked in a radicalism that it doesn't actually Mm -hmm. possess in real life. Like, American liberalism, as represented by Michael Moore, by The Daily Show, you know, is not a fundamentally kind of radical or even sometimes even a coherent political project. And so when, you know, Jon Stewart and The Daily Show existed in the age of Bush, it did feel like this was kind of a... A tradition of like comedic, you know, Mm -hmm. but principled dissent against, you know, a bad right wing administration. And then it became uh, and we'll get into this more when we talk about the rally to restore sanity. But I think you're right that it became uh, kind of even limper when, you know, you had a a Democrat in the White House who was himself very fond of platitudes and pieties about bipartisanship. And all of a sudden, you know, the Jon Stewart fulcrum of liberalism pivots to a point where it's just, it's like, look at all these unreasonable people over here 
Right. You know, like let's just let's just restore some sanity. And the limits of Stewart's, I guess, intellectual project quickly became clear when anytime Obama would do something bad, Stewart would say on his show, "Well, this is pretty bad uh, that Obama did, but check out this thing that Sean Hannity said about it and right. how it contradicts his earlier stance." Right. And, Owned with his own logic. And who cares about Hannity? And you know, as I think the Trump administration has shown us that like the intellectual inconsistency of the Republican Party, if you're going to go after them for that, it's just a dead end. It's completely irrelevant. Nobody, yeah. nobody, nobody cares. cares. Yeah. The, the Daily Show just seemed to be this this endless quest to own them by their own logic right. and thereby discredit them forever. If do you remember, there was it's I mean, it's probably buried in the mists of misery and everything else mm-hmm. following the uh, the election. But if you remember, like two or three days before the election. I just remember this tweet, one of the many Josh TPM tweets that has not aged very well. I like the one where he tweeted porn. Yeah, that was pretty good. Angela and Strawberry. Um, Did you watch the video? I did not, but I heard I did, I, I did. I, over. <laughs> it was pretty tame. Pretty stuff. tame stuff. I listened on Chapo Trap House. Like I listened to them watching it, and I yeah. think I got the idea. But do you remember the Josh? That was. I mean, I know there were so many Josh TPM tweets to ridicule, but there was one a few days before the election where you know there was some bullshit story that you know some lib journalists had where it was like all the liberal journalists who promised that like the Kurt Eichenwalds of this world who were like. You know, I'm going to unleash all my remaining opposition research on Trump and it's going to finally bury him. And there was some garbage story that was like, uh, Melania Trump, uh, who's an immigrant, by the way, uh, you know, worked illegally for 20 weeks in the United States or whatever. And I remember Josh TPM had this, you know, he tweeted and he was like, bam. Yeah. It's like as if this was going to make any difference to anything. Yeah. As if like the displaced machinists who handed Trump Michigan and Pennsylvania or the like, feral tea partiers that voted for him or the like you know uh malevolent like you know suburban college educated rich assholes were gonna be like <laughs> you know oh that is a logical inconsistency i i guess i'm with i'm, I'm with gonna, her now gonna vote for the woman who i've spent my whole yeah. life hating <laughs> yeah exactly um, yeah ridiculous but i think you're right <laughs> that the colbert show was better i mean it yeah. was just a more complicated achievement you know when you watch him doing this kind of like masterfully sustained character over the course of years that is able to adapt to whatever the kind of like Fox News mode is at that any given time. And then then you watch Jon Stewart, who basically just plays a clip of Hannity saying something dumb and then And then there's a it cuts back to Stewart with his weird face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it, um, it's, it's like chess versus checkers, you know? Now, before we say too much more mean stuff about Jon Stewart, I, I would add... He's funny. I, well, he's he can be funny, and I would add the addendum that I, in spite of it all, kind of like him on a personal level. I think among the different rungs of, like, insufferable... Like, we have we have some pretty bad pundits in, in this country. You know, uh, we're in Canada, by the way. That might not be evident from the show. But, like, some of the liberal media establishment, like, some of these, like, Keith, the Keith Olbermann, and, like, (laughs) that just, that kind of uh, style of punditry, I I think Stewart is just, is much more likable than that. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a smugness, perhaps, to, like, the culture that surrounded The Daily Show. I think Jon Stewart, you know, Jon Stewart is someone who's occasionally gotten, he's had his good liberal card revoked by annoying irritated uh unite blue jerks for like criticizing hillary clinton on occasion or or whatever like i think i think he means well and uh and i don't find him 
personally irritating. I um I won't use the expression love the band, hate the fans, because I've never loved Jon Stewart, but I do think that the culture around him is kind of worse than he is. All the HuffPost articles that are Jon Stewart eviscerates Sean Hannity. Yeah, that I, more than anything turned me against for, John Stewart. For, for a few years, I mean, the HuffPost just seemed to exist as kind of like a, a content generator where they would just repackage like whatever the Daily Show clip was from last night and add a add an all caps headline or something. And I mean, in fairness, John Stewart is a lot better than his successor, Trevor Noah, uh, who recently, uh, right after Trump's election, wrote an op-ed for the Times called "Let's Not Be Divided. Divided people are easier to rule." And it ended with, this is him talking about growing up in apartheid, uh, and he writes, When you grow up in the middle, you see that life is more in the middle than it is on the sides. The majority of people are in the middle. The margin of victory is almost always in the middle. And very often the truth is there as well, waiting for us. And then earlier he says, uh, We can be unwavering in our commitment to racial equality while still breaking bread with the same racist people who've oppressed us. I know it can be done because I had no choice but to do it, and it's the reason where I am today. Well, and doesn't he say earlier in the article, like, it's framed as let's not be divided, divided people are easier to rule. Mm -hmm. And he frames kind of apartheid South Africa in a strange way by sort of saying, like, this was about keeping people divided to make them easier to rule. And... Well, there's probably an element of truth to that. I'm not sure that's like an accurate characterization of of the apartheid regime in South Africa. We watched a couple of clips from the rally to restore sanity, which really needs no introduction. But there's a certain school of Democratic Party thinking that its chief ideology is compromise, bipartisanship, unity. Like, have you seen Cory Booker's new book that's called, I think, United? I mean, Jesus. Th- that's not an ideology. No, no. I mean, that's just a means to an end. Yeah, and I mean, I I spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I'm writing about I'm writing with the West Wing right now, actually. So this has very, been very much on my mind. But certainly, a big conceit of American liberalism and liberalism generally is that I mean, you know, it was right there in what you read from Trevor Noah. This kind of fetish for the middle. The trouble is that if the middle were actually an, a discernible ideology, then perhaps you could grab a hold of it. If you were a critic of it, you might have something to engage in. Frequently in my debates with liberals, I find that like, I'm not engaging with them even so much on ideological grounds. There's a debate about, there, there are these kind of constant meta debates about um, procedure and, and process and what kind of language we should be using and things like that. I mean, the Democratic primary of the last year is a really good example of that. You had a representative of kind of the party's center or even center right, and you had a representative of kind of the American left. And instead of having a debate about, you know, the merits of like single payer health care versus, you know, um, continuing with the Affordable Care Act or something of that kind, you know, you had these meta debates about, well, you know, um, Bernie Sanders won't be able to get anything through Congress, even if we actually like his opinions. Or, well, actually, Hillary has the same politics of his, as him, but she can just, like, get it done better, whatever. And wherever you come down on that, like, these are not ideological debates. Or, I mean, I think the subtext is that they are, and that the people who make those kinds of arguments are just not as uh, 
progressive or as radical as, as, as they actually seem. And I think the last year has been more than evidence for that. But yeah, so I mean, at the core of this is just this constant celebration of compromise and, you know, kind of the aggregation of different values together, because these people genuinely have the view that you have right wing ideas and you have left wing ideas, but it's superior when you combine them. And I think any solid ideologue or thinker on the left or the right would probably agree that that's not the case. You can't just fuse right-wing values and the policy prescriptions that follow from them with left-wing values or vice versa. Yeah. It just doesn't it just doesn't work that way. You actually produce worse public policy and I think you produce a worse political culture because you have a you know you have people just complaining all the time that like nobody's getting along you don't have any robust debate about like values or interests and fundamentally that's what politics is about how did you like those clips from the rally to restore sanity that we watched if we amplify everything we hear nothing There are terrorists, and racists, and Stalinists, and theocrats. But those are titles that must be earned. You must have the resume. Not being able to distinguish between real racists and tea partiers, or real bigots and Juan Williams, or Rick Sanchez, is an insult, not only to those people, but to the racists themselves who have put in the exhausting effort it takes to hate. So I'd never seen the clip at the end of Jon Stewart and his kind of closing speech. There was a clip, we watched a kind of highlight reel, which was actually mostly just Stephen Colbert coming out of a sort of tube in the stage. <laughs> the, the only moment I'd seen was where Cat Stevens or Yusef Islam was playing... Um, you know, peace train and then Ozzy Osbourne interrupts him and it's sort of supposed to be like, that's the like, I'm a little bit country, I'm a little bit rock and roll sort of. Right. Or I'm, I'm a little bit hippie and I'm a little bit heavy metal or whatever, mm -hmm. you know. So then we watched Stewart's speech, which is like 12 or 15 minutes long. And I mean, and it, it, it's bad. It has not aged well. I mean, I'd never seen it before, but man, it is, it is a pain to all these things I've just been complaining about. So that was what, 2009? 2010? Yeah, 2010, I think. So that's like seven years ago. And what a peculiar artifact it is, though. Yeah. A late night comic in a suit. Yeah. Holding a rally on the Washington Mall. Giving, giving an earnest, no, like, a no, speech. a joke free, earnest speech yeah. about um, using our inside voices yeah. and the power of compromise. Yeah, and we'll, we'll but with, play... no, with no politics. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, we'll play a few clips from it. What's striking about it is. You know, this is ostensibly, you know, a gathering of kind of, um, I mean, it wasn't the liberal opposition because liberals were institutionally in power, but this was supposed to be kind of the liberal movement. This was a big cultural moment for them. And do they have a rally, you know, in support of single payer health care or, I don't know, prosecuting bankers or, you know, whatever other cause you can think of? Absolutely not. They have a rally in favor of of the need for more compromise. Uh, there's this article by Mark Ames, who I'm totally unfamiliar with, but it was written around the same time on this site called The Exiled. But he said something like, that's it, that's all this is about. Not to protest wars or oligarchical theft or declining healthcare or crushing debt or a corrupt political system or imperial decay. Nope. The only thing that motivates liberals to gather in their thousands is the chance to celebrate their own lack of stupidity. Right. Woohoo. And earlier on, he points out that 
there was a point in the rally where everyone at the rally did a wave, but it was an ironic wave. So they're kind of pretending to be working class people doing a wave at a stadium, but maintaining the high ground because, well, we're not really doing a wave. It's a postmodern pastiche of a wave. Yeah, I mean, so the the layers of hollowness, if I can put it that way, are breathtaking. Mm. I'll read another thing, hilarious enough, published in Vox, was uh, Emmett Renson's great essay, The Smug Style in American Liberalism. You know what I like about Vox? It's objective. <laughs> it's like, all they're doing is just telling you the they facts. They just explain things, man. And, but, you know, uh, it seems the truth veers towards liberalism. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, we've been pr- pretty charitable to Stewart himself, I think, but I, I do think we have to grapple with, I mean, whoever we want to pin it on, you know, what Emmett, I think, rightly calls the smug style. And he writes, Over 20 years, an industry arose to cater to the smug style. It began in humor and culminated for a time in The Daily Show, a program that more than any other thing advanced the idea that liberal orthodoxy was a kind of educated savvy, and that its opponents were, before anything else, stupid. The smug liberal found relief in ridiculing them. The internet only made it worse. Today, a liberal who finds himself troubled by the currents of contemporary political life need look no further than his Facebook newsfeed to find an explanation. The good news doesn't stop. Liberals aren't just better informed, they're smarter. They've got better grammar. They know more words. Smart kids grow up to be liberals, while conservatives reason like drunks. The studies about daily show viewers and better-sized amygdalae are knowing. It is the smug style's first premise, a politics defined by a command of the correct facts and signaled by an allegiance to the correct culture. A politics that is just the politics of smart people in command of good facts. A politics that insists it has no ideology at all, only facts. No moral convictions, only charts. The kind that keeps them from imposing their morals like the bad guys do. And just, there's one more bit. Knowing is the shibboleth into the smug style's culture. A culture that celebrates hip commitments and valorizes hip tastes, that loves nothing more than hate reading anyone who doesn't get them. A culture that has come to replace politics itself. Well, it's a a culture that doesn't engage with conservatism as a body of ideas. It engages with conservatism as a misunderstanding. That's right. Yeah, it thinks that it thinks that conservatism is. I mean, insofar as it is a body of ideas, it's ideas that are based on mistaken facts. Right. And all you have to do is just correct them. Right. And then uh, conservatives will uh, become liberals. And therefore, if you spend you know ten years, fifteen years on the air owning them by their own logic, That's right. well, eventually, all you have to do is fact check Donald. One of these days, you know, Donald Trump is going to be. Uh, He's going to disappear in like a, a puff of smoke because uh, a, a superhero known only as the blue check mark will fact check him into oblivion. The other thing about the rally to restore sanity I wanted to mention was this false equivalence thing. This was much remarked on at the time, but in the final speech that we saw, he made some comment about, you know, we have to understand that not all Muslims are terrorists and not all Tea Partiers are racist. That's an insult to the real racist. Right. To, or so, but I mean, basically, it's encouraging us to respect the Tea Partiers and That's not right. call them racist. And because- then, he, and then he's like, and then he lumps like in among the racists are Marxists. That's yeah. a group that he that he targets <laughs> there. It's like it's extremists on both sides. And there's a you know there's a pretty basic problem with this, which came through in one John Stewart sketch that I remember. It happened during one of the flare-ups in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And without getting into the weeds of that conflict, it was a segment where basically Stuart is like, he gives this sort of generic pro-Palestinian argument, and then all these people jump out at him and start yelling at him and calling mm-hmm. him like a Jew hater. And then he gives like the pro-Israel argument, and all these people jump out and start calling, you know, right. it's like that. And 
I think anybody who feels passionately about any political issue or is educated in it, you know, knows that you, you don't solve it like through rational dialogue. You don't solve the problem by, even if you could facilitate rational dialogue at a, at a table just like this one between <laughs> uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians. It, like nothing about that solves the clash of values, the clash of interests, the, the power. It doesn't take into account the power relations that are at play, none of that stuff. So it's just a totally inadequate way of conceiving politics. Uh, and uh, since we were talking about the rally to restore sanity, there's one other piece here, a really excellent one. I think a, a classic of um, Jacobin Magazine by uh, Robin Marie Averbeck. And I think we might have even talked about it on the show before. I'm sure we have. It's called Why I'm Not a Liberal. Mm-hmm. And she writes, I had come to Washington along with 215,000 others to participate in John Stewart's Rally to Restore Sanity, an event inspired by Glenn Beck's Rally to Restore Honor. The festival reached its height as the spectators were treated to a video montage of fire-breathing pundits from all the major news networks denouncing their political opponents. The message was clear. Those who tell you there are fundamental differences between Americans that are worth getting emphatically angry about are lying to you. This divide in America, an America that contains people with just radically different values and radically different ideas of what a just, moral society looks like, does not exist. If it seems otherwise, it is simply because, as one sign at the rally put it, we failed to use our inside voices. Standing in the crowd, I felt my eyebrows furrow. True, the antics of cable news conflict do nothing to contribute to the national discourse. True, most American citizens are more complex than the buffoons we rightly dismiss as pundits. Yet for all their shameless spectacle-making, the talking heads of the national news media do get one thing right. There are substantial and fundamental oppositions between Americans. Yet if mainstream liberal outlets are your major news source, you would never know it. Stewart himself drove this point home with his final speech, an earnest pain to looking past our differences built on the assumption that ultimately we all share the same goals, hopes, and dreams. If the picture of us were true, of course our inability to solve problems would actually be quite sane and reasonable. Why would you work with Marxists actively subverting our Constitution or racists and homophobes who see no one's humanity but their own? We hear every damn day about how fragile our country is on the brink of catastrophe, torn by polarizing hate and how it's a shame that we can't work together to get things done. But the truth is, we do. We work together to get things done every damn day. You know, that final speech, I was just thinking, like, it is kind of like a popular mode uh, that comedians, like, through the whole 20th and going into the 21st century have used, this, this point where, like, okay, jokes are not enough anymore. To bring it back home, we have to we have to be serious. Like it's like Chaplin at the end of the Great Dictator. That's or right. Yeah. Bill Maher and Religious, <laughs> <laughs> or Michael Moore at the end of Fahrenheit 9/11. Uh, I mean, I'll give Chaplin a pass because he was because he's great because <laughs> he's great and he was going against Hitler. Yeah. But I mean, in general, I don't know. I think it's like antithetical to comedy, it's, and, and it's a misunderstanding of what the role of comedy is. Well, okay, you know what? Let's um let's take a few minutes and and talk about that. We may get back to John Stewart, but. Um, I think that it's safe to say that in comedy, because of things like The Daily Show, but now manifest in all kinds of things that are mainstream comedy, including especially SNL, the line between kind of like earnestness and telling jokes has really been blurred, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people actually get into comedy because they see comedy as like 
telling truth to power or or right. like they they're really excited to get in there and punch up you know right i i've said this on the previous podcast but i think a lot of comedians are people who couldn't hack it as public intellectuals yeah you know i think that often what passes for comedy now is just people making like good points right, right and right. and you also have these this new phenomenon where you know, I mean, with Stewart, a lot of the rally to restore sanity, I mean, up until the end anyway, when he w- went fully earnest, kind of, you know, was at least attempting humor. But mm-hmm. now you have things like you have an SNL sketch where it's just someone in character as Hillary Clinton singing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, and there's no comedic conceit to it at all. It's just, and and I mean, SNL too is especially, it's just be- since the famous an admittedly very good Tina Fey, Sarah Palin impression. So much of it now is just people doing impressions. It's not even, and I guess impressions can be funny. Well, but, I mean, I mean, it's that's always been part of SNL's history, but but uh, I mean, has it always been the early in SNL? Like the joke was that Chevy Chase did Gerald Ford, but he didn't even bother to look like Gerald Ford. Right. So it was almost kind of like a meta impression. Well, I mean, there's something to that, but I mean, I feel like so many of the impressions you see on SNL. I mean, meta impression sounds like a really interesting or sounds like an overly interesting way of just saying like we're gonna do like a caricature of something mm-hmm. so it, that just gives us license to do whatever we want it doesn't even have to have any so i mean do you remember their awful like rob ford sketch oh yeah where they well, just had like somebody as rob ford who didn't look or sound like rob ford or talk like ford. For, for me like i think snl has had a checkered history of political satire i think the most overrated passage was uh, dana carvey's impression <laughs> of george hw bush which <laughs> was much loved at the time. And I mean, I think a lot of people can still like, people remember Dana Carvey going, ah, it wouldn't be prudent, uh, not going to do it. But oh my God. Th- but like there came a point when like Dana Carvey wasn't even doing an impression of George W. George H.W. Bush anymore. He was just like doing an absurd yeah. ver- impression of himself doing an impression. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, of course, he did do a mean George W. Bush, which, which was adapted for his much-loved film, uh, The Master of Disguise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but anyway, getting back to the point about comedy, yeah. I think, you know, people read something like the Borowitz Report, not so much to laugh, but to have a feeling of catharsis. Right. That's what The Daily Show, more than anything, provided. Yeah. Just a feeling of, you know, in its lesser moments. I mean, it was often a very funny show, but it's, in its lesser moments, it was something that had the look of comedy, the texture of comedy, but more than anything, it just made you feel like applauding rather than laughing. So do we, do you have any theories about what accounts for this kind of shift in, you know, the way comedy? Because I feel like when in the 90s, when I thought of like big stand-up comics, they were these vulgarians, they were, you know, or even the ones like Bill Hicks who tried to be earnest or George Carlin when he went, did political spiels. Like, I feel like that was secondary to what they were doing. And like, for the rest of the time, they were just so vulgar. Whereas now I feel like this really is the the norm for what comedy is just like a liberalish person, like, you know, doing platitudes with like the thinnest veneer of humor to it at all. And yeah. fundamentally to me, a comedian's like the point of comedy is to make people laugh, not to like yeah. affirm that liturgically affirm their prejudices or, or beliefs or whatever else. I mean, I don't want to, you know, necessarily paint a comedy with a no, broad no, brush no. because, yeah. because we look back at the history of comedy and I mean, there have always been good comedians and bad comedians. When I think, when I think of like the timeline of comedy, I point to in the fifties, you know, Lenny Bruce, Shelley Berman, you know, these are the comedians who, put forward the idea that a comedian is a social commentator, not necessarily just like a Bob Hope gag machine. Right. And then, you know, people like George Carlin or Bill Hicks or uh, John Stewart, you know, 
regardless of what you think about them, they're kind of the heirs to that tradition. But then, you know, there's somebody like Jay Leno or Jimmy Fallon who are just kind of joke machines. But uh, do you not think that, that the the style, this kind of, the, the Daily Show house style has really become the norm in mainstream comedy? Yeah, um, I, I think it's very prevalent. I'm... I don't know. I don't know if that's just an illusion that we're just seeing it now, or if it was always that way. Um, but it, I don't know. It, it's definitely been very influential. I mean, The Daily Show has been extremely influential on the whole industry of like fake news. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. has. I, I mean, like satiric fake news. Well, it seems to me the function of a lot of this kind of stuff, though, is is exactly all the complaints we've been making about kind of um, the Daily Show more generally. Like the function of this particular comedic mode is really the same it's just to i mean you know because where is comedy based it's based in these like blue states these liberal milieus like la and uh nyc Mm -hmm. and it really does seem to it it does seem to often function as kind of an extension of that so it Mm -hmm. reflects kind of a a very like dare I say it, bourgeois liberal kind yeah. of cultural ethos, which says that um, liberals have the facts and conservatives right. are just bad. And, and uh, you know, so comedy is just us, like, having a good old laugh about that. Well, I mean, I think when people go out for entertainment, when they go out to see a movie or a play or a comedian, basically they're going out for pleasure. And right. pleasure for most people is having their values affirmed. Yeah, and, I guess and, so. And feeling good about themselves. I mean, a really good comedian, somebody like a Norm MacDonald, I think is actually challenging to you. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. Norm MacDonald's a niche taste, unfortunately. <laughs> um, is, is there anything we want to talk about Rosewater? Just because watching it, it seemed like kind of such a nothing movie. And I, I was thinking, why would why would Jon Stewart make this? What point was he trying to get across? Because when I saw the trailers originally, I mean, it almost had the look of a movie that like a liberal would make to show, well, hey, we can be kind of Islamophobic too. Like, it's, which is not what the movie actually is. That's not what the movie is. I mean, uh, the movie is just a, you know, liberalish take on the kind of Iranian like protests and constitutional mm-hmm. crisis dispute of 2009 and kind of the Iranian opposition movement. But I, I don't, I, I really don't think the movie actually sheds, any, it doesn't make any attempt to shed any light on what the opposition movement is mm-hmm. um you meet some of the people who are supporting the opposition candidate but you don't really get a sense of what they're they, they just don't like Ahmadinejad I think that if that you know strikes a chord in kind of the American liberal psyche it's this idea that in all societies fundamentally there's just this yearning for democracy and 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 it, it's just held down by these kind of oppressive forces. And mm-hmm. I suppose, yeah. to Stewart's credit, he does mention like the West, like the film mentions the Western-backed Shah, who was installed by a kind of joint CIA MI5 coup in in 1953 after the secular leader of the country Mossadegh tried to nationalize the uh, the oil resources in Iran. I don't know. I don't think it sheds any light. It it, it you know what it reminds me of is kind of the um, the not very interesting or historically informed comedy that was just ubiquitous during the so-called Arab Spring. Because the Arab Spring was something that everybody from like, you know, like the David Frums of this world were behind it. You had George Bush coming out of, uh, you know, hiding, um, (laughs) coming out from like the Iron Lung where he currently (laughs) resides or whatever to, to be like, I planted the seeds of democracy. I started this. But I mean, everybody, everybody was pro Arab Spring, and and I think that uh, not a lot of people really took the time to kind of educate themselves about what you know the particular historical circumstances in these countries were that were like leading up to the Arab Spring, or 
you know, what the opposition movement, what was the composition of the op- opposition movements, what were their actual demands, to what extent were they coalitions between like middle class liberals in, in major cities and others and that kind of thing. Um, and I also think, and this film definitely kind of hits it, hits at this a little bit too, there was a certain, I think there was a certain undercurrent of Western chauvinism to the idea that fundamentally what's behind um, something like the green movement in Iran is... Uh, they have Facebook and they have yeah. smartphones and they have, you know, it's like there's a somewhat clumsy scene when we see a bunch of hashtags appear on screen. That's and, right. Yeah. I mean, it's funny if you read kind of the the really dumb and it has not aged well kind of agitprop from the mid 90s about the Internet, um, the kind of stuff that would have been, you know, in like Bill Clinton's State Department would have gotten passed around. There were people who were earnestly convinced that, you know, these inventions, like this this new thing called the Internet, which was basically invented by the U.S. military, mm-hmm. was going to, you know, you weren't going to be able to have dictatorships anymore because there was just going to be this new openness of information and things like that. And um, there was also, I think, a certain Western chauvinism to, to that. It's like liberal democracy, has liberal capitalism has produced these new technologies and, and they're just going to spread liberal democracy across the globe. Insofar as any of that is present in this film, it's present in a very passive way because the film is just a little too milk toast to really even convey that in a, you know, <laughs> yeah. in an ideologically strident kind of way. All right, I didn't get to see the film because I had to do a benefit thing last night. Right. Um, but, but it's great. Yeah. I think you know that. Well, it got good reviews from all the liberal papers. <laughs> what? Gee, what a... Um, but what's the main a point? Twisted what's the, worldview you live in. For people, for people who aren't ideological, okay, yes. and they go to see Rosewater. That's right. What do you want them to leave the theater with? Uh, I think I want them to to leave the theater with the idea that uh, this type of repression of your own people is unsustainable. That uh, the idea, you know, as technology has sort of democratized information and the definition of who's a journalist and these bloggers and activists, they're being arrested all around the world, not just in Iran, but everywhere, in, in countries that are also allied with the United States. And, and the idea that is the apparatuses in these countries that have been set up to suppress information, to, to hurt their own people, are not sustainable. The style of the movie is peculiar. He seems to be going for this kind of like documentary approach. The movie has a very digital look to it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of handheld camera work. Yeah. I mean, the movie looks a little low rent, to be honest, but I guess that's part of his pseudo realistic. Um, yeah. You know, and I striving. mean, like I said before, give John Stewart credit. This looks like a real movie. It feels like a real movie. It's not. It's certainly not bad. It's just not no. particularly good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, John. Know, just like well, I was gonna say just like liberalism but I take it back because <laughs> liberalism is bad. <laughs> anyway, I think that about covers it for this week. Uh, next time, you know, uh, Knockwood will all still be here. Yeah, and we'll have another thing. Now, now watch this drive. <laughs> I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord But you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall and the major lift, the baffled king composing hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Oh, maybe
maybe I've been here before. I've seen this room and I've walked this floor. I used to live alone before I knew you. I've seen your flag on the marble arch, and love is not a victory march. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. 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 I did my best. It wasn't much. I couldn't feel, so I tried to touch. I told the truth. I didn't come to fool you. And even though it all went wrong, I'll stand before the Lord of Song with nothing on my tongue but Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. I'm not giving up and neither should you.